passage this morning, Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. Brief passage, I hope at least partly familiar. If not, we'll be learning all about it, Lord willing. Let us together hear now what Holy Scripture says. And remember, this is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, and perfect word. Matthew didn't have you in mind when he wrote this. But the Lord did. And he knew that this would be read to you and preached to you this morning. And so let us pay heed now to the reading of his holy word. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Father, we ask that you would bless this, the hearing and now the preaching of your word. Would you cause it to go forth in your power, not my own or anyone else's? Far too weak, far too foolish, far too flawed. To cause any of this to be for the good of anyone, but you can. And we praise you that you use means that to the world and even sometimes to us seem foolish, they are unexpected, and they seem often insufficient. But they are not because you are sufficient. Your power is sufficient. Your power, in fact, is made perfect in weakness. So we boast in the weakness, humanly speaking, of what here will occur through the speaking, the preaching, the hearing, the listening, weakness through and through. But you are powerful. Your power is perfect through our weakness. So be powerful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of his experience. Now, don't worry, I don't talk like that. That's not me. That's a quote. That's not how I normally talk, for those of you who know me. Hopefully I don't. Not that that's bad, but florid language, right? That's a quote. To kind of summarize it, in other words, imagine an army filled with men and women who have signed up excitedly They're willing to wear the uniform proudly. And they talk all about their commitment to serving and protecting. But when wartime comes, when they're actually needed, they're unable to pick up a weapon. They're unwilling to risk their lives in battle. So to quote again, or really to paraphrase, nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with false disciples. With professors, as the Puritans used to call them, we think of college professors, right? But professors who were just that, only professors. They're all talk. 
It's actually a quote from J.C. Ryle. Many of you know him, know of him, have read some of his works. If you're not familiar with him, he was a minister in Liverpool, England in the 19th century. And those words were said about 150 years ago, just to give you some context. Those are about 150-year-old words. And my question is, would you agree with them today? Is Ryle correct, do you think, even today? I'm inclined to say that he is. Of course, I'm using the quote. I'm inclined to agree that this has been at least one of the greatest problems that the church has had ever since, especially since, I should say, the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening just providentially actually occurred in the middle of Ryle's lifetime in ministry. Quick history lesson. I know Michael taught through that in Sunday school recently, so you all are pretty strong in these things probably. But the First Great Awakening was a revival that occurred 1730s, 1740s. Men like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, just to name a few, faithfully preached the simple gospel of salvation from sin and death through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faithfully preached that simple gospel message and the Spirit was pleased to move through that preaching, to use that preaching, obviously inspiring that preaching, and revival came. Men, women, children, cut to the heart, weeping, convicted, become lifelong followers of Jesus. Not all of them, but many true converts. Now, eventually that revival petered out. And sometime later, there was something called the Second Great Awakening. And the Second Great Awakening was something else entirely. If you could say the First Great Awakening was spiritual, in the best sense of that word, the second could be summed up by the word systematic. If the first was the movement of the Spirit, the second was manufactured by man. The first was true revival. The second, the word we use for it, was revivalism. Men wanted to reproduce that great movement, so they devised systems and methods whereby the supposed fruits of revival, those measurable fruits, could be manufactured by compelling and coercing decisions for Christ. You've maybe heard of the anxious bench. The most famous of these methods really is still prominent today, is it not? The altar call. The altar call is basically an invention of the second great awakening. We need more fruits of revival, which means we need more converts, which means we need more decisions. So we'll have an altar call. The problem, as hopefully you know, is that this altar call, not an altogether evil and wicked thing, but it dangerously confuses an external act with a supposed inward change. It assumes that because an external thing has happened, that an internal reality has occurred. The altar call, along with much of what was done in the Second Great Awakening, is all about getting people to make a decision for Jesus, 
to pray a prayer and make a profession. And once they've done that, it's thought they're in. Or are they? I actually ministered with a young man who did firmly believe in a college ministry that at the end of the service, if they raise their hands and pray that prayer, they are absolutely assured they're entering heaven. And even when presented with the question, well, what, what about what they do next week? What if their profession shows no true lasting endurance? There's nothing behind it, no substance. They just raised their hand and prayed a prayer, but there's no walking of a new path after that. Now, I've said that I'm inclined to agree with Ryle's summary of this great problem of false converts and easy believers. And if I may be so bold, I would contend that Matthew, as he's written this gospel inspired by the Lord, I would contend Matthew would agree as well. It's obvious if you read through this gospel, if you just sit and read through it, Matthew keeps throwing in our faces the ways that Jesus makes clear he's not interested in false disciples that offer nothing more than decisions. Jesus is interested only in true disciples. You can see it if you read the Sermon on the Mount in his closing words. His warnings. But if we pay close attention... We can see it elsewhere. Here, for instance. And our aim this morning will be to see how these scriptures, this passage, warns us of three obstacles to true discipleship. You want a sermon title? It's the obstacles or some obstacles to true discipleship. And we'll see three. Distractions, difficulties, and delays. Distractions, difficulties, and delays. Obstacle one. Distractions. Now, at this point in Matthew's gospel, the Lord Jesus has been demonstrating his authority and abilities. As masters go, rabbis, teachers, leaders, Jesus is as impressive and desirable as they come. You can't do better than Jesus. He seems to have had this reputation and effect from the very start of his ministry. It's worth taking a few minutes since we've not been, you've not been going through Matthew's gospel to kind of do a brief recap of his ministry to this point. After being baptized, he endures Satan's temptations in the wilderness, and then he begins his actual ministry in and around the town of Capernaum. It's on kind of the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he is. And the core of his ministry is the preaching of the good news. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the core. That's his main goal. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see him call his first four disciples to himself along the Sea of Galilee, the four fishermen, these two pairs of brothers, Peter and Andrew, and James and John. And from there he begins an itinerant ministry, traveling from place to place. And wherever he goes, it seems, his fame spreads and grows. So much so that sick and demon-possessed are brought to him from who knows how far because Jesus is here and he heals them with ease. He's moved with compassion, the shepherd without a sheep, and so he's teaching them and he's healing them. And wherever he goes, he's drawing crowds to himself. 
At one point, upon seeing the crowds, he takes advantage of the opportunity, and what does he do? He preaches that sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. That sermon alone takes up chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel. Almost half of the book to this point is Jesus' explicit, plain teaching. The emphasis on, the, the importance of teaching in Jesus' ministry is impossible to miss if you're really reading closely. The miracles are flashy and impressive. They get a lot of attention. They get a lot of praise. They draw crowds. But crowds are more about distractions than disciples. You pay close enough attention, it becomes clear that Jesus cares more about instructing and teaching, more about proclaiming the truth of the kingdom than being a miracle worker. He gladly performs miracles. He wants to heal. But why? So that people would hear, I offer true healing. You don't just need physical fixing. You need spiritual soul saving from your sin. And that's what I offer. My ability to do miracles is a proof of that. What he really wants to do is proclaim the good news, repent. He wants to teach and train and transform disciples, not draw crowds. If that's not clear from our passage here, turn with me briefly to Mark chapter 1. Look very quickly at this. I'm turning backwards in my Bible. Mark chapter 1, verses 37 and 38. Jesus, again, has been doing healings wherever He goes, casting out many demons. You look at verse 34, many who were sick. Verse 35, look, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there He prayed. Jesus is tired. He's a man. He's the God-man. He's a man. He's exhausted. Crowds constantly pressing in on Him. And he's moved by compassion. Do you know how emotionally exhausting that would be? All of these people suffering so greatly. And he's able to heal them, but he's exhausted. He gets out alone. He prays. And finally, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Where's Jesus? They wake up and he's gone. Verse 37, they found him and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. There's more. The line is growing. More miracles to be done, Jesus. More people to be healed. And look at verse 38. He said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Let's go on to the next town. Sorry, we got to leave this line of people waiting for a healing behind. This may be hard for us to swallow, but the point is, his reputation and fame have saturated the area. He's drawing crowds now as a miracle worker. That's what they want. And it makes it difficult for him to gain a hearing with the good news he actually came to preach. They're not going to hear the gospel anymore. And seeing this, as hard as it can be to see and swallow, helps us understand why when he heals someone we know especially in Mark's gospel he says don't go tell everyone what's happened here that's the reason for keep the secret because he knows this increased fame is going to draw increased attention and distraction and more difficulty for his actual preaching ministry back to the recap back to Matthew 
We see even, again, his preaching and teaching ministry so impressive. It enhances his reputation. At the end of the sermon, we read, When he finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And then if we pick up in reading chapter 8, we see he gets pulled back into healings and exorcisms. A leper, a centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, many others. And again, don't hear me saying he's unwilling to do these things. He's unhappy to do these things. But all of this helps make sense when we come at last to our passage, verse 18. Makes sense when we read that when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Jesus knows it's time to move on. He could fill arenas with people flocking to him. He's the greatest show in town. He could be the most popular man in the world. But he knows these crowds are filled with people distracted from the real purpose in his coming, the real message, the real salvation. Jesus was never interested in the crowds. They may have been impressed with him, but you see, he was never impressed with them. And this is still relevant for us today, is it not? I would contend so much of the church today has missed this. Now again, I'm speaking very strongly. I want to speak, I'm not down on crowds. But remember, Jesus is interested in disciples, not decisions. Crowds are great at producing decisions. Builds up a whole lot of hype, a whole lot of energy and excitement and emotion. You can get people to decide, just do just about anything in a moment. But crowds aren't very good at producing disciples. Not in the long term, not over the long haul. But we find, what do we find today? So many churches today focus on and excel at gathering a crowd and compelling decisions for Christ. But Jesus doesn't want decisions for him. He wants death to self and undivided devotion to him. And hear me, because I'm only going to say this once. I've kind of already said it, but the point is not that smaller is always better or big is always bad. That's not the point. Neither is the point that no true disciples can come out of crowds. They can. But the goal is true discipleship, which consists of inward change not external acts and the sad reality is that crowds can be very good at stirring up a whole lot of external activity but they tend to be very inefficient at producing inward change unfortunately in a misguided effort to be as effective as we can be we think to draw a crowd and call them to make this decision for Jesus. We, pay, we pat ourselves on the back as we count up the number who signed the card or so on. But if we pay close attention to Jesus, we'll be far less enamored with crowds than we are. Jesus certainly was not sold out to them. Because at the end of the day, crowds tend to be driven by and drawn toward distractions. They can even be distractions themselves. Many in here who are 
firm and faithful followers of Jesus, you would have in your own testimony, regardless of what megachurch you might have been a part of, it was really a person or a small group of individuals who took you alongside them and discipled you. That's what gave you the roots you now have. So we see first that true disciples are not pushed or pulled by distractions. Sadly, though, we see that crowds tend to produce apparent disciples, people who appear to be disciples, who express interest in following Jesus. Crowds can do this. Apparent disciples can abound. But they're, in fact, not the kind of true disciples that Jesus is interested in. So as he gives orders to his closest disciples, the ones with the boats, these are fishermen, let's cross over the Sea of Galilee and escape the crowd so I can go preach somewhere else. A couple of men come forward expressing such interest to follow him, to stay with Jesus. We want to stay with you. We want to follow you. But Jesus somehow sees through their requests to follow him or at least challenges those requests. He challenges the sound of sincerity to see if they're only surface commitments. And we see these two interactions with these two would-be followers of Jesus. Obstacle two, difficulties. We could say unseen difficulties. We see this in the interaction between Jesus and the scribe in verses 19 and 20. A scribe came up and said to Jesus, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, scribes in the Gospels, you might know, are typically shown in an altogether unfavorable light. But this one actually sounds pretty good. His profession sounds very similar to another famous profession of commitment in the Scriptures. Sounds like Ruth, doesn't it? Where you go, I will go. And we praise Ruth. This is a great profession of commitment to follow. This scribe swears full allegiance But Jesus challenges that. Questions. You really know what you're saying. I'm reminded, one of the passages in John that sticks out to me is at the end of John chapter 2. We read that many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus sees through. You just want me the miracle worker. You don't want what I'm really here for. Now we could poke at the scribe's address. He he calls Jesus rabbi or teacher. Matthew only ever quotes this word on the lips of those who don't fully believe in Jesus. Those professors only. The problem is it's an accurate title, but it's not an adequate title. And ultimately, what Jesus is challenging here is a man who's interested in following Jesus, the famous teacher. I mean, who doesn't want to stick by the guy that crowds are drawn to? It's a party wherever he goes. Everyone's so excited. You get to watch miracle after miracle after miracle. He's the coolest guy in the world. I'll follow you wherever you go. It's a great show. Let's take it on the road. I'll come with you. But what this man doesn't understand, and Jesus somehow knows, is that he's going to be rejected in Judea. 
He's going to be cast out of Galilee. And the next couple of passages, he's going to be begged to leave the Gadarenes, another region across the sea. He's going to be refused lodging in Samaria. Jesus' life and ministry, to sum it up, is going to be more restrictive than foxes and birds. They have it better than he does, earthly speaking. The way he refers to himself here, the Son of Man, as many of you know, is his favorite self-reference. That's his favorite title for himself. And it has layers of meaning. He gets it primarily from Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is the one who comes with the clouds of heaven descending to judge. The judge who comes in all glory, with all authority. But often when Jesus refers to himself this way, Ironically, he speaks clearly of his humiliation. Just in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 17, he refers to himself as the Son of Man and then talks about his suffering at the hands of those who reject him. In 26, he talks about his betrayal and crucifixion. In chapter 12, his burial. Son of Man, glory, power, authority, judgment. Rejection? Betrayal and crucifixion? Burial? The point is that, yes, Jesus has come, but he's come in humility, in humiliation this time. Yes, I am a rabbi, I'm a teacher, I'm the great teacher, but more than that, I'm the teacher, I'm the word of God. I have all power and authority, but I've come in utter and absolute weakness and humility. You really sure you want to hang out with me? He might say to the scribe, were you paying attention to the Sermon on the Mount, how, how I opened? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. It's not a very triumphalistic beginning. The scribe thinks to sign up for Team Jesus because Jesus seems so impressive. He's so cool. But the reality of his coming and the role he aims to fulfill in his life is far more humbling than all of this. So many, even these days, sign up to join Team Jesus because it looks great. He's sold with so many perks and benefits. And yes, the greatest blessings imaginable in heaven or earth, in all of eternity. The greatest blessings are found in Jesus. But by and large, how much can we attest to the truth that they're not largely found in this life? True peace and rest to some extent for our souls. It is well with my soul, but it's not great with everything else. Jesus doesn't offer your best life now. He offers, you know what he offers? The cross, the call to die to yourself so that you might gain true life. And I I just have to ask, and I'm going to be a little bit blunt here. Are you willing to be a loser in this life? At least in many people's eyes, for Jesus' sake. Are you willing to be a loser? For Jesus' sake. Because by all appearance, Jesus was not on the winning team. 
we all know how the story goes. We do, but most people out there don't. The world does not, or they refuse to believe it, and they think it's a foolish fairy tale that only fools believe. You see, even the disciples fall into this trap when James and John, I think it is, are asking Jesus, hey, can we sit at your right hand and at your left hand in glory? Because they're just thinking triumphalistic Jesus. And he's saying, you have no idea what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup? And he kind of chuckles to himself perhaps and says, you will because you're going to be martyred too. It's a difficult path. And continue to reflect, what have you lost or left behind in order to follow Jesus? And it might be a tough question to answer right now. It has been a tough question at times to answer in this country, I would contend, in an age and cultural climate that's not been, for many decades at least, openly hostile to Jesus. I mean, we live in a country, fortunately, for some reason, by God's grace and His providence, that for many years it was actually socially and culturally advantageous to be a Christian. It benefited you to say, I'm a Christian business owner, or in a job interview, because, well, we know you're going to have certain morals and values then. Even if the hirer is not a Christian, they'll appreciate that you have morals and values. Not to say that non-Christians can't. But can I just say to you, this question, I would contend, is going to get easier to answer if things continue on the current trend. Living in a Christianized culture, it costs very little to follow Jesus. But that's likely changing before our very eyes. Now, I hope I can say this respectfully. I think it's, as, as Michael often says it, those of you who have more gray hairs on your head than I do, many of you listening to me right now won't be around to see how much it might cost to be a Christian, to become a Christian in coming days. But I tell my youth group all the time, I pray for them, and I try to tell them that they will see this shift. When I became a Christian about 10 years ago, it cost me very little. No severe costs, no real lost or broken relationships. There were some tensions and difficulties because it changed some of my life and practice, so to speak. But I didn't lose friendships, didn't lose family members over this. Some in this room have. This has happened, I know. But I think that as men and women are coming to Christ these days, I think again of those in schools and in colleges, universities, it's a little costly. There might be some jokes, slightly different treatment. I hear stories from some of the young men and women, again, in my church, but nothing too severe. Mockery, scorn, shame, insults. And those can hurt a great deal. We hear stories about people making a stand. Some in this room might have made some stand for Christ in a sense. Maybe not directly, but because they were unwilling to sin in some way in their job and they lost their job because of that. But I suspect that as the years roll on, not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but as the years roll on, if the Lord tarries, those who don't get called home to glory will see this cost increase. And you will know when someone comes to Christ and professes his name, you'll know they mean it because they're going to lose a lot doing so. 
Everyone think of how, at least in the church, how sweet a time that will be because how much we'll need the mercy and the ministry of one another, the fellowship that we'll have within these walls as we comfort and support those who've abandoned and lost so much outside of here. But it's easy. It's easy to follow Jesus, to say to him, I'll follow you wherever you go, when the crowds appear favorable to him. When everybody loves Jesus, at least by profession, it's really easy to jump in. What a painful, but what a blessed grace it was that this man was able to hear Jesus warn him. You have no idea what you're saying. Are you sure? It's not going to be comfortable. He won't allow this man to rest in a false profession. Are you sure? We don't know what became of this scribe. Matthew doesn't tell us. But the Lord would not allow him to rest in a shallow profession. How many, I wonder, have thought to be following Jesus, but were actually just going with the crowd? How many in our day? Those words I tremble at more than any others in the scriptures at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these great things? And you notice Jesus doesn't oppose their claim to all these works they did. He just says, I never knew you. Wide is the gate, easy is the path. And when an entire culture appears to be going after Jesus, when you've got crowds around you cheering for him and excited, we can be fooled into thinking that we're true followers when in fact it's just a crowd offering surface-level devotion at best. This is the very point and purpose of trials, right? Untested and untried faith may not be true faith. That's why we're to thank God for our trials. They purify our faith and prove their value greater than gold. Faith that has been tested and tried, that has clung to Jesus through suffering and through sacrifice, that's true faith, and we can rejoice in that faith. Because He has not abandoned me, and He's held me close, and I've not abandoned Him. This faith is a gift, and it's a gift when He tests it. If this culture is going to begin to show more and more its true face in greater opposition to the Lord Jesus... And if you and I should be on the receiving end of that opposition at any time and any situation, if it should suddenly feel like Team Jesus is not exactly the winning team right now, remember that it's just for right now. Do not be afraid. Cling to Jesus. Trust in Him. Remember, if they despised and rejected Him, they're going to despise and reject you. A true disciple is one who is not driven away by difficulties. We need to move on. See the third obstacle to true discipleship. True disciples are not pushed or pulled by distractions. They're not driven away by difficulties. And true disciples overcome one other obstacle. Delays. Jesus has a second interaction. This third obstacle. Delays is shown in it. It's a would-be disciple. Jesus preparing to depart and cross the Sea of Galilee, verses 21 and 22. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's the end of this story. 
After this, Jesus is on the boat, sleeping. Matthew doesn't tell us anything else. Follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, there's some debate over the specific situation that this would-be disciple is in. The question is whether the man's father has already died, and the man is asking for a delay of a few hours so that he can go be a part of the funeral and then join Jesus, or is his father under his care in his final months or even days, and the man is asking, well, I'll catch up with you later. Can I come follow you once I've done my duty here and I've buried my father? Some tie inheritance into this and think that he's being selfish. I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced of that. But the point is, each is plausible. Whether he's got a few hours or he's already died. I've read commentaries that argue for each one. I am more convinced of the second, that he's waiting. He's doing his duty of sonship to care for his father in his final days. I'm more convinced of that one. Burial of the dead tended to happen within hours in that culture. And if this man's father had already died, he would have been keeping vigil over the body. What's he doing here? It doesn't quite make sense. And one commentator even argues from Arab and Eastern custom that the phrase to bury one's father is a cultural idiom and it refers to the duty of the son to remain at home. Remain at home and care for your parents until they're laid to rest respectfully. It's a cultural idiom. It's a phrase. And Jesus would have understood that. You got to let me stick around because my dad's dying and I got to do, you know, I have to do what I have to do. I have to care for him. Now, however convinced I am of that explanation, I'm fully convinced that it doesn't matter because the problem is the same either way. The principle at issue and the warning being offered is the same either way. If you would follow Jesus, follow him now. Do not delay. Jesus says, follow me. I don't want to hear your excuse to follow me. A true disciple is not delayed by disordered priorities. Now, if the second explanation is correct, there's an if. I think there's weight to this either way. But the man is appealing to strong, universally supported and accepted and embraced cultural customs that prevent him from following Jesus right now. The culture says you can't do that. You've got to tend to your father. Jesus will be around. Catch up with him later. Your father has only days. Remain with him. But Jesus won't accept. Oh, I'll follow when the time's right. I've got to get some other things in order first. I've got to figure out some details of my life. Solve some problems. Put some things in order. Then I'll follow you, Jesus. And Jesus won't accept that. His further command, leave the dead to bury their own dead, is offensive enough to our ears. But I promise you, they're even more shocking to Middle Eastern cultures. Again, one commentator says that he'll never forget he was teaching in seminary in a Middle Eastern context. And the students literally turned white, he says, when this text was expounded with its clear affirmation that Jesus is claiming higher authority than the authority of the Father. The point is, it doesn't matter how good, acceptable, agreeable any cultural custom or explanation is. 
No excuses. There's no acceptable delay from following Jesus. I know what can this mean for us today? We, we obviously can't physically follow Jesus like this man could have. We can't travel around Palestine or Fort Mill or Charlotte behind Jesus. We don't walk with him literally. So what does it mean for us today? Well, the, the broad answer is following Jesus means forsaking other things in pursuit of him because of his greater value to us. When we follow Jesus, we show that we are willing to walk away from anything for him. He's worth more than anything to us, and we will forsake anything for him. So, hypothetically, and you can think of dozens of examples in your own head, when presented with a choice between anything, even a very good thing, even the best cultural customs and expectations, when presented between anything and the Lord Jesus, we choose Jesus every time. We choose Jesus even if it scandalizes the watching world, right? And sometimes it's going to. We choose Jesus even if it shocks those who are closest to us. <clears throat> including our closest family and friends. And John Piper commenting on this verse says, following Jesus is so supremely important that it calls for behaviors that are sometimes going to look like hate to the world. Isn't that true? And getting truer by the day. What is keeping you, if anything? What is delaying you, if anything, from following him today, committing to him, pursuing him? There's no justification, no excuse good enough, no delay worthwhile. He says, follow me. End of sentence. Whatever you want to fill the blank in, maybe it's not going to bury your father. It's who knows what. He says, follow me and leave that. Leave it and follow me. True disciple is not pushed or pulled by distractions. A true disciple is not driven away by difficulties. And a true disciple ignores any and every delay. As I've already pointed out, we don't hear the response. The ultimate end of these would be disciples. We don't know if the scribe decides to follow Jesus after all. We're not told. He might. He actually might. We don't know. Does this man cling to Jesus and leave his father behind? Matthew doesn't want us to know. The Lord doesn't want us to know. But of course, the point for us is not how their story ends, but how ours, how ours does. How does ours go forward? Will you commit to follow him and forsake and abandon distractions, cling to him through difficulties, 
and ignore delays and cling to Him. It's my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that You confront shallow professions. I pray that we would be a community who does that graciously, but truly and boldly, that we would come alongside one another confront one another, when we see professions that do appear to be shallow, when we see weakness and hesitation in the face of distractions under the weight of difficulties, or we see excuses and delays, Lord, would we come alongside those whom we love, who surround us here and others in our lives, and would we, as Jesus did here, would we lovingly confront them? and challenge them, and call and urge them, and encourage them, and even so much as we're able, so much as we are able, Lord, would we help carry them through discipleship by your grace and strength. It's your power, it's your spirit who saves, who sanctifies, who leads and equips. But help us, Lord, to be a community who, like this, will examine ourselves. and make true professions of discipleship and commit to follow Jesus at all, at every cost? And would we lovingly and firmly confront the others around us to do the same? We thank you. We love you. We rest in the great assurance that salvation is of the Lord, not of our own doing, not of works that anyone may boast. This faith is a gift. Would you strengthen it in us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.